Uh, we'll be back in our series in Romans. And so if you can turn with me to Romans 3, uh, Romans 3, verses 1 through 8. Uh, it's House Bibles, I believe it's page 940. So if you've been with us for a while, you know that we've been going through the book of Romans. Uh, and as we've gone through verse by verse, we've finished chapters 1 and 2, uh, and we've titled it the, the Vast Separation. And so Paul has titled it that, uh, we titled it that way to kind of help us uh, understand what's going on in these first four chapters of Roman. Uh, and so as, as Paul is writing to the Roman people, he's writing to a very diverse group. He's writing to the Jews and the Gentiles, which are non-Jews. And one of the biggest issues that's going on among them is this disunity or this division. And so Paul, knowing this, the first two chapters, he talks about a subject that's common to all people, no matter where you come from, uh, the subject of sin or God's judgment on sinners. And so in chapter 1, Paul addresses the sin and corruption uh, among humanity, which kind of points out to the, the sins of the Gentiles. And then in chapter 2, as the Jewish crowd is like, yeah, you're right, Paul, Gentiles are sinners, Paul also comments on how the Jewish folks are sinners as well. And as Rafe preached last week, how their sin was trying to fool God by using various Jewish symbols or traditions to cover up their sins. But Paul concludes that that is sin too. You are guilty of judgment and of your sin. And so Paul concludes in chapter 1 and 2 that everybody is a sinner before a holy and righteous God, which then brings us to chapter 3. And so chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, uh, let me read this for us. It says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. God, as we um, dig into this text, this uh, very difficult, um, dense text, God, I pray that you may open up our hearts and see how it even applies to us in 21st century America, God. And so, God, just open up our hearts, uh, cast all distractions that we have away. May it be your words that are spoken. May you cast me to the side, and may you be glorified, and may your Son receive all glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, about a couple of years ago, uh, I was driving up north in the north neighborhood in the uh, Irving Park neighborhood, I believe, with my fiance. Now she's my wife. And while we were driving, I remember this, on, on Kimball Avenue, we, we noticed a bunch of police cars in this busy, busy intersection with all their headlights flashing. And so we're like, what's going on here? And so I kind of drive carefully. And as we're, we're driving up, we noticed that these police cars, it's not like one incident, it's all these cars that are pulled over by individual police cars. And so I'm like, oh, okay, I got my seatbelt check. I, I have, you know, my, my hands right here on a ten and two wheel. I'm making sure that I'm not breaking any laws here. And so I drive slowly. 
And then as I was driving, there's this man about to cross the street. And as he's about to cross the street, he kind of goes and he kind of hesitates a little bit. And so he, he walks back to the street. And as any good Chicago driver knows, even though there might be, you know, some white lines kind of indicating a crosswalk, I just drive right by him. And as soon as I cross that white line, the sirens ring and my heart just drops in my stomach. And I'm like, man. And so I pull over and the, the police officer gets out of the car and, and I ask him, like, officer, what did I do wrong? And instead of just speaking a word to me, he just ha- hands me a flyer and it says in bold letters, Illinois law, pedestrian right away on all crosswalks. And I'm like, what? Come on. That's such a, that's, that's, that's not true, is it? Or I guess it is, but it, it, you know, there's no stop sign there. Like, come on, this is not fair to me. And, then, and as I'm waiting for my ticket, I see in my rearview mirror the other cars and that same man hesitating. And as he hesitates, if cars stop for him, he walks by, nothing happens. But if the cars speed by him, here comes a police car. And I'm like, come on, this is not fair. I don't have money to pay for this ticket. I'm a poor seminary student. There's no way I can do this. And, and at that moment, I definitely was not very pastor-like. And, and I was like, this is not fair to me. You know, when we're in situations like this, whenever we're unjustly penalized, isn't our immediate reaction, even if we're in the wrong, to argue and to fight back? Like when we get that dreadful orange envelope on our windshield, or when we get that unexpected bill that we thought we didn't use, or when our favorite sports team, like the Bears, incur an unjust penalty, and even replay shows it, you still believe they did not commit that penalty. We say that's not fair. Well, as we enter into chapter 3, Paul kind of takes a little sidebar here, because he realizes that as a Jew himself, his Jewish brothers and sisters probably did not like what they heard in chapter 2. Paul knew that without these eight verses, the Jewish audience would be like me. They would object and fight back against what Paul just said and probably not even listen to the rest of Romans if they were given the chance. They would say, you can't say that Jews and Gentiles have the equal sin. You can't say that. That's not fair. So in these eight verses, Paul kind of uses a sidebar as a kind of a hypothetical debate. He has this debate with, I mean, like, uh, he's not having an actual debate with someone, but like an imaginary debate between like a Jewish debater and Paul. And so he begins to answer them. And just to let you know, there's a lot of theological, biblical, and cultural context within even just this argument, and I can't get to all of it today. Um, you know, a commentator even said that this particular passage is probably one of the most difficult passages to preach on in Romans because it's so condensed to a first century uh, Christian Jewish audience. And so if you have questions that come up to it, just remember, I have Rafe's email address, okay? And so you can ask him about those questions. Um, but, but, you know, to kind of make this uh, sermon a bit more understandable for us, I'm going to preach a little bit differently today. I'm going to just go through the debate and the arguments, just kind of go through the whole thing so that we understand what exactly is going on. And then after that, I'm going to take a step back and look at the passage and see what we in 21st century America can learn about um, what Paul is getting at here. What's the principle that he's getting at here, okay? All right, sounds good? All right, well, let's go. First objection in verse 1, Paul says, what advantage is it to be a Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? 
You know, as Rafe went over last week, the Jews were God's chosen people, right? In the Old Testament, God gave them a covenant to bless them. He gave them circumcision to be an identity marker. He gave them the law to know how to walk and obey God's, God's law. So the debater asked Paul, well, if you say Gentiles and Jews are under the same sin, does God's covenant that lasted for generations and generations, are you saying that that doesn't make a difference for us? Are you saying that that's not important? Well, look with me in verse 2, and Paul says, well, yes, it does, much in every way. Of course it does. As he continues in verse 2, he says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Or another way to say oracles of God would be the full revelations of God. What are these oracles? Well, if we do a bit, kind of go back to the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, which is, uh, the, the chapter is really outlining God's covenant promises to the Israelite people. In chapter 4, verse 8, it says this, What other nation is so great as to have such righteous degrees and laws as this body of laws, I, I being God, am setting before you, Israel, today? Or if you go to Psalm 147, verse 19 to 20, it says, He, or God, has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and his decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. So Paul's response, the God of the universe, the creator of the world, revealed his very nature to your people, his character to you, his plans, his ways to you. He walked with like, with like a cloud and with fire through you for 40 years. Of course you have an advantage. But then the Jewish debater brings another argument and says, okay, we have an advantage. In verse 3, he says this, what if some were unfaithful then? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? In other words, okay, Paul, I, I get it. Jews have an advantage. But then what about those Jews who did not have faith and were punished and judged? If God's people were unfaithful, does that mean that God's covenant, our circumcision, our law didn't work? The advantage that you say we have, does that mean that God was unfaithful? What's happening here is that the Jewish debater is trying to throw some shade on God. He is basically arguing that it's God's fault for letting our Jewish ancestors fall into sin. If God didn't keep his promise to bless his covenant people, then God is the one that is actually unfaithful. It's his fault. Well, you, if you see in verse 4, Paul gives an emphatic, no, you're wrong. He, it's the most, um, the strongest way you can say no in the Greek language is this word being used, by no means. He says, let God be true, though every person or everyone were a liar. You have it wrong. God is the one who's true and reliable. Humans are the one who are liars. And to prove this point, Paul quotes from Psalm 51. If you see in your text the, the quotation part here, Paul quotes from Psalm 51, and if you know this psalm, if you're familiar with it, it's the psalm that King David wrote after he had committed an incredible sin before God. King David was confronted with the prophet Nathan, and he, and because King David, he had basically coerced Bathsheba, his, not his wife, to sleep with him. And then after finding out that she was pregnant, he went out to strategically place Uriah, her husband, in battle to get killed to cover up his sins. And so Psalm 51 is an outpouring of David's confession and how he knew he did an ultimate wrong. 
And so if we go back to Psalm 51, uh, a little bit before the quotation that we have here, you'll see it behind me. It says this, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And here's the verse that's quoted here in Romans 3, So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. King David, considered to be one of the most righteous and honorable men in Israelite history, the, the man after God's own heart, acknowledges that the sin is his fault. It's my fault, he says. God is not to blame. He is just. He's blameless. He's just to even condemn me and punish me for my sins. So what Paul is saying is that if King David even recognized that when God punishes sin, you as a faithful Jewish believer should know that when God punishes sin, it's not because of his unfaithfulness, it's because of his faithfulness to hold on to the promise of the covenant that he gave to his people Israel. It's essential to his character. Again, if you, if you kind of go back to Deuteronomy 6 through 9, we see this outlining of, of God's covenant promises to bless Israel when they obey his law, but then to also punish them when they disobey. And so if we see in chapter 9, verse 19, it says, If you, being the Israelites, ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. So whether in his blessing or in his punishment, God is always faithful to his character, even when his people are not faithful to him. So then the debate continues, and more questions are asked, and we get to our third and final objection. Starting from verse 5, I'm just going to read verse 5 through 8 again. It says, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. Again, there's that language. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. The Jewish debater takes it one step further, and he's testing God's character. He's saying, so if our sin allows God to display his righteousness, then, then why are we judged as sinners? Is that really fair? Is God unjust to punish our sin if our sin makes much of him? Wouldn't it make, make, make more sense to sin and do evil so that God's grace can abound to us and he can get all the glory? Paul, what, what is it then? It's either God is unrighteous in punishing our sin or we should be able to sin so that God's grace can abound. So many questions. Uh, for, for Paul, essentially what he gets at is that these are human, are literally foolish arguments. First, is God's, is God. Is God unrighteous to punish sin? Paul again says, by no means. What are you talking about here? As he says in verse 6, God judges the world not as someone who is unjust or unfaithful, but he judges the world because his justice and faithfulness is part of his character. To say he is unrighteous to punish sin is to put God and his character on trial, which as a Jewish early believer, that would make no sense. Because if, again, if you go back to Deuteronomy, which they would have memorized portions of Deuteronomy, in, verse, in chapter 32, verse 4, it boldly proclaims that God, he, he is the rock. His works are perfect or true, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, 
upright and just is he. God is righteous to judge all sin, whether you are a Jew or whether you are a Gentile. Okay, okay, so then now in verse 7, if his righteousness is revealed because of our sin, should we keep on sinning so his grace abounds? What's happening here, and there's so much into this, but basically what's happening is that this is an abuse of Paul's message of grace. Paul, if you say that we just need to believe in the gospel, then do our sinful actions actually have negative consequences, especially if God forgives and gives grace? For Paul, this question is so wrong and corrupt. He doesn't even answer it. If you look in verse 8, there's actually not an answer to this question. He just simply says, their condemnation is just. Or in other words, their punishment is deserved. Doing evil to receive good or forgiveness is one of the most human corrupt arguments we can make. Simply by saying, can, do you steal something so you can receive a prize? Does that make sense? Do we kill so we can give life? Or do we commit adultery to love our spouse? It doesn't make sense. For Paul and for the Jewish believer, it should be utter foolishness. Sin deserves punishment from a righteous and just God. Yeah, grace does abound, but it only abounds not with willful and purposeful sin. It only abounds in a heartfelt confession like we see in King David's psalm. So Paul here, like a well-prepared defendant, he shoots down every one of these objections and he makes it clear that Jews and Gentiles are both sinners before God. But now as we step back and we see what, what is Paul trying to accomplish here and what can we as a church now learn from this uh, sidebar that he gives and I believe there are, there are some things that we can learn. But let me, let me tell you a, a short fable um, called The Emperor's New Clothes to kind of help, uh, help, help us understand what's going on here. You know, in this tale, if you guys have heard of it before, uh, a certain emperor was so fond of clothes and appearances, he commissioned some clever philosophers to make him a new wardrobe. You know, they offered him uh, a, a rare and costly garment. But the unique thing about this garment was that it would be invisible. Invisible except to the wise and pure of heart. The delighted emperor sat down before these empty looms and he watched as they pretended to weave this invisible cloth and garment. And after a while, he sent his best official and said, hey, go look at the progress. See how my garment looks right now. And they went and the official saw absolutely nothing but he didn't want it to appear unwise or impure. And so he told the emperor, it's a beautiful piece of work. You're going to be really impressed. And so then, still, the weavers are asking him for more money. And so the king sends another official. And the official sees it, but doesn't want to seem impure and unwise because he sees nothing. He goes back and says, these weavers are amazing. You should give these people a prize for this amazing garment they've made. And finally, the king gets to see the garment. And he sees, again, nothing. But he doesn't want to appear unwise or impure. And so he says, amazing work. This is one of the best pieces of garments that I've ever seen in my life. I am going to wear it for our, like, for our annual celebration and parade so all people can see me wear this amazing garment. And so the, the weavers put on the garment to the king. And as soon as they do that, they get out of town because they know what's going to happen next. And as soon as the king starts to walk to the crowds and people are seeing their emperor wearing nothing, 
they're like, well, we don't want to seem unwise or impure. And so they're clapping. They're celebrating. They're like, this is an amazing piece of work. And as the parade begins to wind down, at the end, there's this little kid, a little boy, who sees the emperor, and he's like, Mom, isn't, isn't that man naked? And as soon as he says that, everyone begins to realize that they have been fooled and that the king is wearing nothing at all and that it breaks apart this hypocritical pretense that was building up throughout the entire kingdom. You know, I share that story because as we just went through Paul's hypothetical debate here with the Jewish debater, what you notice is that the Jewish debater is trying to find any theological or philosophical maneuver to justify their position before God. They wanted to hold on to their Jewishness, the law, or any other human argument so that they could have an advantage and be pardoned from God's righteous judgment. Because of their pride, they did not want to admit their nakedness, their sin, like the emperor. So Paul, like the little boy in the tale, has the nerve to say to the Jewish people, you are all naked too. What Paul is doing is he's stripping the layers of religious affiliation that the Jews were so dependent on. He wanted them to know that nothing, no amount of human reasoning could cover up their sins and their guilt before a holy and righteous God. And as we see later in Romans 3, that every person, Jew, Gentile, no matter who you are, we are all under sin. We are all naked before a holy and righteous God. But what's the temptation for us then as humans? For the Jewish crowd and even for us today, the temptation is that when we are naked and we are in our sin, that we try to justify or rationalize our sins by covering them up with human-made arguments, traditions, and even like the Jewish people here in religions. So to bring the passage back to us, the question that I'm asking all of you today is what are you using to cover up your nakedness before a holy and righteous God? What are you using to cover up your nakedness before a holy and righteous God? And as we see in this text and also in our culture today, I believe there are three different types of false garments that we are tempted to put on to hide from our sin. The first one, for some of us in this room, I know for me that I struggle with this, is the garment of good works or religiosity. If this is you, you're probably someone who grown up in the church, who got saved at youth group by saying the sinner's prayer, who went on mission trips and do all the right Christian things by not, doing, not drinking, not partying, not cursing, not sleeping around. And you pride yourself in those statuses or those achievements. And whether you realize it or not, each one of those accomplishments, they become kind of a layer of clothing you put on to cover your, your nakedness or your sin. And slowly, even though you may be struggling deep inside with sin or brokenness, you use those false garments to cover yourself and justify your position, your standing before other people and even with God. You say, you know, I struggle with lust and, and pornography, but, you know, I have the garment of being a small group leader and a deacon, so, you know, I'm okay. Or I, I struggle with addictions, but, you know, my, I'm a fifth-generation Christian, so I should be okay. Or I struggle with bitterness or anger, but, you know, I know all the right Bible verses, I, 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 I'm okay. Or I struggle with envy and greed of other people's lives and lifestyles, but, you know, I go to Park Community Church, the best church in Chicago. I should be okay. 
You know, for some of us, our nakedness or our sin is being covered up with those kinds of good works. But for others in this room, perhaps you're covering yourself up with the garment of excuses, which is a, a fancier term to say that is self-justification. What do I mean by that? Some of us, we acknowledge our sin and brokenness, but instead of looking to cover ourselves with good works, we start giving excuses. We start casting blame on God or on somebody else or on our circumstances, anything besides me. So like the Jewish debater, many of us start to blame God or give him excuses for our sin. We say, God, it's your fault that I have this difficult marriage or family. That's why I indulge in these unhealthy habits or substance abuse or get angry all the time. Or, God, it's your fault that I don't have the job that I want or the title that I want. That's why I steal time at work, lie on my reports or my resumes, or tell people that I do this but don't really do that at all. Instead of looking at our own nakedness and putting the ownership of sin on us, we point the finger to God. We point the finger to someone else, or we point the finger to whatever else we can, as long as it's not pointing at us. But again, we're just covering up our sins by making excuses. Yet then, there are some of us who are covering ourselves up with the garment of cheap grace. It's the idea that Paul brings up in verse 8. He says in verse 8, Why not do evil that good may come? In other words, why not just keep sinning? Because, hey, God's going to forgive me anyway, right? I'll just keep doing what I do. I'll just be me because I'll just ask for forgiveness later, right? God forgives. God's gracious, right? I can gossip about my friends because God understands and he forgives. I can yell at my children or treat my coworkers poorly because, you know, God will forgive me later. Or I can idolize my reputation, my resources, or my relationships because, you know, God understands. He'll forgive me later. But again, if we live with the garments of cheap grace, we aren't really trusting in God. We're actually abusing God's grace because what we're doing is we're essentially just trying to layer ourselves with the idea that our sins are permissible, that they're okay to do. But again, this is, goes totally against what God wants for us. And as we saw Paul does in verse 8, he just says that is flat out wrong and in your condemnation, your sin will receive the consequences of God's judgment. Again, some of us are putting on the false garments of cheap grace. Church, what kind of garment are you wearing today? What kind of garment are you wearing is it one of these three? Is it a mixture of these three? I know that all of us, our temptation is to put these garments on because it's easier. It's, it's better to just cover ourselves and to hide ourselves from the reality of the sin and brokenness deep inside of us. Because what happens when we constantly rely upon these garments? What happens to us? What happens is that we begin to deny the seriousness, the destructiveness, just the, the blackness of sin that reigns in our hearts. Notice the downward trajectory of how we continue to put on these layers. We begin to forget how much sin damages the relationships around us. We begin to forget how much sin destroys our identity, our health, our soul. We forget how much sin feels good at first, but then it leaves us empty and dissatisfied and helpless later on. And we forget how much God hates sin and how how sin separates us, his children, from him. Sin begins to just be the norm for us. 
and these garments of religiosity, our human effort that we're tempted to depend on, they're going to begin to rip. They're going to stain. They're going to fade. They're not going to last. And what's going to happen is we're going to be just like that emperor, and we're going to be naked before everyone and before a God who will judge us for our sins. Because as Paul says at the end of verse 8, if we rely on them, our condemnation is just. We all, because of our sin, deserve death. But church, thankfully, it doesn't stop there. Thankfully, there is good news. Look with me one last time to our passage in verse 3. In verse 3, it says, what if some were unfaithful? Picture us. What if we were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? In verse 4, by no means. God is always faithful. As he's shown throughout scripture, from the new clothes that he would cover Adam and Eve's nakedness and shame in Genesis 3, from the covenant that would bless all peoples through Abraham in Genesis 12, from the promise to write God's law on our hearts in Jeremiah 31, and from the hope of a Savior who would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquity, and heal humanity's wounds in Isaiah 53, Jesus becomes the, fu- the ultimate fulfillment of God's faithfulness. Even amidst our incredible unfaithfulness, that Jesus Christ would be divine and human, lived among us, died a death that we deserved, was raised up in three days to defeat sin and death, the ultimate pinnacle of our nakedness and brokenness, so that whoever, whoever believes, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile or somewhere in between, You don't have to put on these false garments anymore. You don't have to live in shame and nakedness. You don't have to have constantly justify yourself before other people or your friends or your coworkers or even yourself. You are declared a child of God if you believe in Jesus Christ and him as your Lord and Savior, that you are a co-heir with Christ. And as Paul writes later in Romans and his other letters, you are able to put on like a permanent garment, Christ's righteousness. So you're no longer dependent on your righteousness, your nakedness, but Christ's pure righteousness will be on you if you believe in him. And his garments, church, let me tell you, they don't fade. They don't tear. They don't stain. They're made of pure white. And in one day, we'll be all wearing them And we'll be singing with palm branches in our hands, Hosanna, Hosanna to the highest. Worthy, worthy is the Lamb when we praise him in the new heavens and new earth. This is the gospel story that we believe as a church. That Park, we want to live into, we want to remember, we want to worship in, and we want to celebrate over and over again. The gospel is a story of God's faithfulness to save unfaithful and broken people just like you and me. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. So what can we practically apply then uh, in our lives? What can we practically apply this week as we go about our day, our family life, our work life? One thing that I, I feel like comes, came up as I was praying and thinking about this was that we need to stop covering ourselves with false garments, but we as a church need to be better by being more vulnerable and confessing our sins to God and one another. We need to be better at being vulnerable and confessing our sins to God and to one another. You know, one of the sneakiest things that 
Satan does to suppress the church and the growth of the church is to keep the individual sins we have hidden from one another. It's much easier to hide our sins. And so Satan tricks us to believe that. Now, I'm not saying that we should start confessing our sins during our, the greeting time, okay? I'm not saying we do that. But what I am saying is that the more that we are vulnerable, the more that we are honest, authentic about our brokenness, about our mess to our close friends, to our small groups, to our church, God begins to use that. God begins to use us, use the Holy Spirit to heal us, to show you his transforming power and grace. Church, don't you want that? Don't you want to be a part of a church or a community where you can be real and not fake? God does too. God wants that for us too. God hates all the fake and false garments that we're trying to walk around with throughout our entire lives. Jesus died so that we could be vulnerable with him and with one another. He didn't die for us to be wearing man-made garments and false garments like we have today. When we are a church that is vulnerable, that confesses our sins to one another, our prayer lines become transformed. Our worship becomes more real. Our community goes deeper. Disciples are being made. In church, that's where revival begins to happen. Let me just close with this. You know, growing up, there was one thing that I could depend on every single day of my life. It was my mom's prayers. Um, she would get up every morning at, and drive 25 minutes to early morning prayer, a, a staple of the Korean church. And she'd get up at 4.30 in the morning, get to church by 5, pray for about over an, a little over an hour, and be back in time to help us get ready for school. In high school, I thought I'd be really spiritually mature and go with her, but I realized that it was much more difficult than I thought. I would fall asleep on the way there, during prayer, and on the way back home. And so, uh, if anything, it proved to me just how faithful my mom was in her prayer life, because she would never fall asleep, which is amazing. Um, but what's even more amazing is that during the times where life was difficult for her and for our family, whether it was dealing with uh, my father, who was an alcoholic, or whether it was dealing with my brother, who walked away from the faith for a long time, or even when her church had closed after 20 years, or even when her health was declining, she would still get up at 4.30 in the morning and pray. Pray for her family, pray for God's mission to go forward, pray for me. Um, and when I look at my mom, a, a woman of God who prays just so much, and I can learn so much from her, I realized that that in and of itself is just a small glimpse of God's faithfulness to us. Because if we look at this room here, God's faithfulness to each one of your individual lives, I'm sure we can recount so many different things to it. And I can look at my mom and my mom and how she's a, a picture of God's faithfulness. But as we look to scripture from Genesis to Revelation, which Revelation even hasn't happened yet in our time, God's faithfulness expands throughout the entire lane. And for us, no matter what we're going through, if we are trying to cover ourselves up with these false garments or justify our sins or, or live in ways that God does not want us to, God is still faithful. God is still faithful that if you come to him, if you come naked, exposed with your sins, God is willing to accept you in. God's faithfulness is so good, church. And I pray that we as a church will come to him with, just, with our arms open because we know that his 
arms are wide open for us too as well. And so I just want to close with this passage that Paul actually writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, It's probably one of the last letters he writes, and he writes this. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with them, we will also live with them. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Let me pray. God, we thank you for who you are, that you are a faithful God, that, God, we confess that we have many different types of garments that we try to cover ourselves with. But I pray, oh God, that today that we, you may be doing a great work in us to reveal that we need to put on Christ, that we need your grace. And so, God, what, whatever garments that we have on right now, continue to strip us, oh God, and remind us that we need you each and every day. In Jesus' name we pray.